0: Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. As we prepare to read God's word together, let's ask God's spirit to help us. Let's bow for a brief prayer. Holy Spirit, truth divine, dawn upon this soul of mine. Word of God, an inward light. Wake my spirit, clear my sight. Holy Spirit, love divine, burn within this heart of mine. Kindle every high desire, perish self in thy pure fire. Holy Spirit, law divine, reign within this will of mine. Be my law, and I shall be firmly bound forever free. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. My favorite people in the world to preach the word to are right here and the ones who are coming in second hour. I uh, was here yesterday for a wedding, going to be here this afternoon uh, for a funeral. There's, there's nothing like the family of God. And there's nothing like week in, year in, year out, going through the ups and downs of life together and clinging to God's word together. You truly are my favorite people in the world to preach to. And when it comes to my job, I guess, every job, you have things you love to do and you have things you have to do. And years ago, actually when I was 20 years old, 19 years old, when I was called to ministry, the, my favorite thing in ministry was just nailed into my heart with this Bible verse in Acts chapter 6, verse 4. And the funny thing is that I was waiting tables on Ventura Boulevard at the time, and Acts chapter 6, verse 4 says, let us appoint someone else to wait the tables, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And ever since then, I, I can say with honesty that they're tied of my favorite thing to do, pray and preach the word. But one more little personal comment, then we'll jump into 1 Peter. We're coming out of a little series that ended up longer than I wanted it to be, uh, that where, I, where I did kind of a topical series where we answered different cultural questions out of the Bible. That's not my favorite. <laughs> it needs to be done every now and then, so I'm happy to do it, but if I don't do that again for eight years, I'll, I'll be fine. Preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible is my absolute favorite way to do preaching. And as God would have it, the topical series that we just finished, which was like, uh, why is the world so crazy? And we answered questions about LGBTQ plus and men's and women's roles and, and uh, you know, everything that, that kind of is our culture is upside down about. Uh, the interesting thing is coming into this exposition of 1 Peter, I think, it, I think it relates to what we just did. The theme of 1 Peter can be expressed in many ways. I'll express it in several ways this morning, but here's one way to put it. 1 Peter is about this. When you are living in freaky times, how do you not freak out yourself? That's what the book's about. And I believe that everybody believes that we are kind of living in freaky times. And one of the themes of 1 Peter is, when you're in a world that has lost its mind, how do you not lose your mind? Or this, when you are in a world that because of your commitment to Jesus is trying to shut you down, how do you stay open and filled with love and keep sharing the good news anyway? The theme of 1 Peter is how to live with joy when people are trying to kill you. The purpose statement of 1 Peter is perhaps summed up by Peter himself in chapter 5, verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 12, he says that he's sending the letter by Sylvanus, his friend, a faithful brother as I regard him, and he says this, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. The purpose statement of 1 Peter, according to Peter in this summative closing statement, is that the true grace of God enables you to stand firm in a world that's upside down and completely freaked out. The true grace of God and you understanding the true grace of God enables you to stand strong and to stand firm. Peter's concern is my concern that... The challenge is every one of us is faced with difficult circumstances that try to knock you over from standing firm. Closest to the target in First Peter, those circumstances aren't like getting cancer or something like that, as difficult as that is. The, the difficult circumstance in 1 Peter is persecution because of your Christian commitment but we could expand that to whatever kind of suffering. But in his case, being persecuted for your commitment to Christ might make you waver. It might make you doubt Christ's goodness and so loosen your grip on Christ. Or it might, to be candid, you might realize, well, if I'm a little quieter about my Christian commitment, maybe I won't get beat down so much. And so it can, it can make you not want to stand firm in your commitment to Christ. And Peter says, my purpose is that you would understand the true grace of God in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and understanding this would enable you to stand strong. This letter is universally relevant. Believers were clinging to this letter in the very first century while they were being threatened. Believers today in Caverdino in China, in the Middle East, cling to this letter's promises in the most difficult of circumstances. Because the theme is, how can a Christian live with hope and steadfastness within a harmful, hostile, unbelieving world? The world really does seem to be losing its mind. The world really does seem to be becoming more hostile toward people of Christian faith. And that's why I think this fits right after that little series that we did on why is the world so crazy and trying to answer some of those cultural questions. In my, if you'd let me make a distinction, in my role, not as a pastor of this church, but in my role as a citizen of this country, and in my role as a husband, and in my role as a dad and a neighbor and a grandpa, I'm prepared to take biblically appropriate action to, uh, to stand for the cause of, uh, of morality and righteousness in the public square through my vote, through, through righteous participation in various things. And I'm not going to compromise what I believe about those things. At the same time, at the same time, I will not become a person who is utterly and completely controlled by and freaked out by everything that's happening in the public square because I have a greater vision than that. I care about that. But I have a greater vision than that. What fills my vision is Jesus Christ. And what fills the purpose of my life is making and training disciples of Jesus who will make and train disciples of Jesus. And I think 1 Peter will be helpful in showing us how to be aware of what's happening in the culture around us and how to respond to it appropriately, but how not to be Uh, controlled by it or obsessed by it or, or whatever you want to call it. Be present, be alert, be responsible, and yet always without giving way to compromising our faith or becoming fearfully obsessed over every next thing that is or isn't going to happen. Peter writes so that we can stand firm in the true grace of God. And I'll give you this morning three themes that answer the question why we need 1 Peter. Three themes for why we need 1 Peter. Theme number one. I'm so bad at this. I send these notes in and then I don't write them in my own notes so I forget what I even said. I left it down here. What am I doing? Uh, Theme number one. We are chosen for suffering and for glory. In Christ, we have both. That's the first theme. We are chosen for suffering and for glory. In Christ, we have both. Uh, Verse there, in addition to 2.13, which is listed, I'd ask you to actually turn to 4, chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Look at what it says about suffering and glory. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see the the theme, we are chosen. It doesn't just say for suffering, but you can't erase that. We're chosen for suffering and for glory. In Christ, we have both. Peter has several lists. Look at the first one in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter has several lists throughout Peter where he tracks on two tracks. He lists the outrageous blessings that we are given in Christ. And he lists the variegated, almost indescribable sufferings that Christians endure throughout the world. And he always runs both of those together. See it in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You see the blessings, you see the trials. You see the blessings, you see the trials. And you have both. We are chosen for suffering and for glory in Christ. And in Christ we have both. Interwoven in every time that Peter lists our privileges is the likewise catalog of sufferings that we're called to if we're going to follow Christ. Why do we have to suffer so much? Permit me to answer that, maybe by saying something that should be obvious but we don't reflect on enough. Why do we suffer so much? The answer is not because God isn't good. And the answer is not because someone pulled one over on God and God didn't know and he couldn't do anything about it. Why do we suffer so much? We suffer so much because we live in a world that is dominated by the prince of the power of the air that is active and at work in the sons of disobedience. This is why we suffer so much and the day is coming when that suffering for those who are in Christ will end. Our great privilege is that we have been called to citizenship in heaven and our great suffering is that wherever we live on this world is not heaven yet. And the more the prince of the power of the air dominates among the sons of disobedience in our culture, perhaps the more we will suffer. We're called to suffering and we're called to glory. You see them both in the life of Christ. Look at verse 11 of chapter one. Peter, like in a snappy way, summarizes the whole Old Testament and all the prophecies about Jesus. And look what he says about all the prophecies about Jesus. 1.11, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. All the prophecies of the Old Testament are in these same two two tracks. The sufferings Christ had to endure, the glory coming to Christ. And so we who are in Christ have sufferings to endure and we have glories coming to us. We are chosen for salvation, which is the great blessing. And we are chosen to go through suffering and loss on the way to that ultimate salvation. And it's both and, not either or. You can't pick one. You can't pick extra potatoes and no corn. You got to have them both. You got to have them both. Why is that? Well, we have a home in heaven, though perhaps we must be homeless now. We have a reward which is to come. And so it may be that our earthly goods are stolen from us now. We have an inheritance which is to come. And so it may be that because of our Christian commitment, we become penniless now. Christ gives us a sure and certain hope of what's coming. And we can endure through sufferings if we know that Christ suffered for us. And we can endure all the way to glory if we know that in Christ, that glory is incorruptible and imperishable. The death and resurrection of Jesus, the suffering and glory of Jesus, 1 Peter, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the suffering and glory of Jesus is what saves us. In 1 Peter, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the suffering and glory of Jesus is also the paradigm and the pathway in which every follower of Jesus is called to walk. Jesus in 1 Peter is not only the object of our faith, Jesus is the object of our faith and he is also the pattern by which we walk by faith. And so you'll see Jesus is the savior who forgives us 1 Peter 1, verse 2, we are sprinkled by his blood. Jesus is the savior who forgives us. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So in Peter, certainly it is true that Jesus is the savior who forgives us. How is that forgiveness ours? by grace through faith. So the second thing we can say about Jesus is Jesus is the one we place our faith in. Jesus is the one in whom we have placed our faith. 1 Peter 1, verse 20. Look at 1 Peter 1, verse 20. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Look at verse 21. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You see in verse 21, we're believers. You see in verse 21 that our faith is in God. Jesus is the one in whom we place our faith for salvation. And yet third, not only is Jesus the object of our faith, Jesus is our example as we follow him in faith right now. That's the third truth about Jesus. Jesus is our example to follow right now. And here, have you heard these verses before? Look at two twenty-one, First 1 Peter 2, verse 21, in his steps, in his steps. Verse 21 of chapter two, for this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges all things justly. Jesus is our example to follow right now. And then fourth and finally, Jesus is the promise who shows us where we are going forever. Jesus is the promise who shows us where we are going forever. Look at 1 Peter chapter four, verse 12 through 14. See it? Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings so you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of Christ rests upon you. When Peter summarizes the return of Christ, look at how he almost ends in chapter 5, verse 10. Verse 10. The theme we found in chapter five, verse 12, standing firm in the true grace of God, but look at his, as he's landing the plane, look at what he says, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Jesus is the promise who shows us where we're going forever, that we're going to a place where God himself will confirm us, where God himself will wipe every tear from our eye, when God himself will forever be our rest from all sorrow and suffering. That's the first reason that we need First Peter because we need to understand that we're chosen for suffering and for glory. We naturally gravitate toward a message that says we're chosen for suffering. I mean, I'm sorry, we naturally gravitate toward a message that says we're chosen for glory. We naturally recoil from a message that says that we're chosen for suffering. And yet this is is the whole theme of 1 Peter. The first way that he describes Christians in chapter one verse one is elect exiles. And we're like, well, I wanna be elect. Elect for heaven, elect for glory, elect for a mansion. I don't really want to be an exile. <laughs> I don't want to be at home. <laughs> I don't really want to be mistreated as a foreigner who doesn't fit. But we are, if we are elect, we are exiles. Suffering and glory. We've got to keep them together. That's the first reason that we need 1 Peter. There's a second reason, and it's this: we can endure persecution without losing hope and joy because of Christ. We can endure persecution without losing hope and joy because of Christ. Look with me at chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. We are going to suffer some forms of harm. We're going to suffer some forms of persecution. But look what he says about that persecution and even some of that harm that we suffer. Verse 13 of chapter 3. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be We can endure persecution without losing hope and joy. We can, in fact, endure some forms of harm without losing our hope. The theme of 1 Peter is how to endure persecution without losing hope. The theme of 1 Peter is how to live in a world that's freaking out and taking that out on you. Without yourself freaking out and without yourself returning in kind what the world is giving to you. How to revile, how to be reviled without reviling in return. We could say it like this First Peter is about how to lose everything without losing hope. First Peter really is a microcosm of what it means to believe in Jesus Christ through the storm. And how that salvation enables us to live in a harsh, volatile, very difficult world. One of the themes in 1 Peter is victorious, triumphant faith in the middle of losing everything and suffering. How to live without losing your mind. How to live without becoming worldly in a world that has lost its mind and is taking that out on Christ followers. The theme is how to be mistreated and still rejoice. How to be mistreated without growing bitter about it. We all know someone who we have, we probably all know someone who we have a tremendous amount of sympathy for because they have been mistreated. And yet over the months and years we see that turn into a a sort of a calloused bitterness in them. How can I endure mistreatment without myself becoming embittered? The only way is to be in Christ and to follow Christ, who being reviled didn't revile in return. It's the only way. How to live in a world that mistreats you without mistreating back. The purpose of the letter is how to live victoriously in a hostile world. Uh, One study Bible put it like this. The theme is how to live victoriously in the midst of a hostile world, number one, without losing hope, number two, without becoming bitter, number three, while trusting the Lord, and number four, while looking for his second coming. And that's about right. How to live in a world that's difficult without losing hope, without becoming bitter, while trusting the Lord, while looking for his return. One of the counterintuitive things in 1st Peter. There will be I, I trust there'll be things in every chapter that when I read it you'll be like, "Well, I'm a Christian, so I guess I have to do that, but I kind of don't feel like doing that." And that's okay. Our feelings aren't always in the right place. Just receive the word of God and let it work on you over time. But there are so many themes in 1st Peter that that are not our initial first move like this. Uh when we're mistreated, we instantly claim our rights. We instantly claim our rights. There are times and places where it's appropriate to claim your rights. There's, there's a place where Paul did that in Acts. But there are other places in the New Testament where Christ's followers could have claimed their rights and did not. One of the things First Peter is going to show us is we don't have to stand up and holler about our rights all the time because we know who we are and we know that we're elect, and we know that we're exiles. In fact, those who follow Christ can be mistreated and put down without becoming servile or losing any of their dignity. Now that's something amazing. That's something amazing. To be mistreated and put down without becoming servile or losing your dignity. That's that's Christian. Certainly we know from many scriptures that it's not always right to avenge yourself. You gotta leave things in God's hand many times. Certainly we know that one of the remarkable things that we always reflect on is how the apostles uh, sang hymns while they were in prison after enduring a beating. And I wonder if they mumbled because their lip was fat and bloody. But they sang. But they sang in prison because of Christ. We can endure persecution without losing hope and joy because of Christ. So suffering and submission are two of First Peter's main themes. How to endure persecution. And just to touch on it for a moment this morning, because it's a theme that's going to come up many times. And some of you, you're probably already asking this question. Suffering and submission; the, these unpopular themes. What, what does it mean that we have to uh, submit to government? What does it mean that wives submit to husbands? That employees submit to employers? These things are th- these these submissions: uh, citizens to governing authorities, wives to husbands, em- employees to employers. These are insisted upon in First Peter in very clear, very good biblical language. That obedience and submission is God's good plan and it's to be followed. And at the same time, when we read 1 Peter carefully and accurately, no earthly submission is ultimate because no earthly authority is God. Look at chapter two, verse 13. Just to touch on this, because it's going to come up many, many times as we go through 1 Peter 2.13. Get it. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor or supreme, and he goes on to talk about submission. Key, the key verse on submission is right there. Be subject. God's goodwill is that you submit. And look what it says. For the Lord's sake. To every human institution. So you see how it works out practically in the very language of the text. If we would just take time to read the Bible carefully, we submit for the Lord's sake to earthly authorities. So it's very clear that there's the Lord. And then there's earthly authorities, and there's submission that we give to earthly authorities, but the reason we give the earthly authorities that submission is not because they are the Lord and they're the ultimate boss of us. The reason we give those earthly authorities that submission is for the Lord's sake. And so anytime those earthly authorities would contravene the the good, holy, perfect will of God, we would, for the Lord's sake, submit to the Lord and no longer submit to those authorities. I'm a long way from an expert in figuring out what to do in in every uh, governmental issue that you don't agree with. But I'll tell you this, if you just stick with 1 Peter 2, verse 13 and following, this is the case. Christians uh, are the best citizens. Christians are the sweetest, most hospitable, most gentle, most loving citizens in any government that doesn't usurp the place of God. But if an earthly authority says, no, 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 I am God. You no longer obey God, you obey me. Then those same sweet, gentle, submissive Christians in some ways will become the greatest threat to that regime and you will see that regime killing those Christians first. And we'll track those themes through. I trust not out of my opinion, right wing, left wing, or whatever, but out of careful attention to the verses that we find in 1 Peter. We bow to Jesus Christ alone. And when we bow to Jesus Christ, Jesus freely sends us out to be submissive to the authorities that are over us in the world. And we bear witness to Christ, to those authorities. And we do that with gentleness and with hope. But we submit to them for the sake of Christ and under the banner of his lordship alone. In fact, more than just making it through, one of the neatest things about First Peter is it shows us that when you're being beat down and mistreated, how you can do good to and share the gospel hope with those who mistreat you. I mean, come on. Talk about not just reviling when you get reviled. Talk about not just taking vengeance. This is over and above that because this is Christ. When, When they beat us and persecute us and mistreat us, rather than just not taking vengeance on them, we actively share the good news of the gospel with them. The same way Jesus did, right to his dying breath, right? Our lives are about sharing his great hope. Look at chapter two, verse 11. Chapter two, verse 11 talks about it in relation to the unbelievers. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. More than just making it through. We evangelize our persecutors. Goofy story from my high school days. You ever have one of those things that happens on a particular Thursday when you're in high school and you just, you and the friends who were there just remember it for the rest of your life even though it was a goofy little thing. This is one of those things. I was with the group of friends, we were in Andy's brown Audi that would never pass smog inspection. And we cut off the 118, so we were going through what is that, Tahunga Canyon, where we were going a long way to Zuma Beach through the, through the foothills. And we came out of the foothills, and we hit a stop sign in front of the 7-Eleven where we always got Gatorades. We are, all the windows are down, and we're listening to the radio, because I don't even know if CDs have been invented yet. And we're, we're just like, we're just, we're all singing as loud as we can to the song on the radio. All of us, like, like just a bunch of fools, all four of us. And right up next to us with the windows down rolls up a car with four cute girls in it. What do we do? Do we swallow our tongues and just that cool? Well, we did what what any red-blooded American would do. We turned it up to 11. We did the air guitar, the drums. I think somebody opened the door and shook it outside. Instead of being quieter, we, you got to do one thing or the other. You got to be quieter and pretend you weren't, or you got to get louder and, and, and do it even more. <laughs> and there's a sweet way in which First Peter says, the, 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 the higher the pressure from the world to quiet down, you don't become more obnoxious. You don't become more volatile, but you become more steadfast and more insistent on the fact that you may kill me and my blood may spill, but there is one who spilled his blood for you and I want you to come to him before you die. There, there, there's a gospel earnestness that burns through fear. It has nothing to do with personality or temperament. It has everything to do with anchoring yourself, 512, in the true grace of God. And so we see that when this world hates us because of our holiness, this is not an invitation to hide our holiness. And so we see when the world persecutes us because we bear witness to Christ, This is not a time to be quiet at the stoplight and pretend we weren't singing. We speak the words of life always to everyone. And then the third reason, the third theme from 1 Peter that shows us why we need it is that we live from the future and not from the present. Because Christ is risen, we live in the reality of resurrection hope. And he begins with that in a text that we read, verses 3 through 5. He says we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's Christ's resurrection that gives us hope. Our existence derives its definition from the future, not from the present. Oh, beloved, you, 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 you will never make it through the present if your entire perspective on everything derives from the present. You will only make it through the present if you understand that your existence and the reality of everything derives its reality from the future, not from the present. Our existence derives its definition from the future, not from the present. We derive our direction, our standards, our goals, not from this world, but from the world which is to come. That's a description of every true Christian. The return of Jesus Christ, or the last day, or the resurrection of Christ, or the resurrection of everyone, the quick and the dead, that's where we get this from, the living and the dead, those themes show up in every single one of the five chapters of First Peter, every single chapter. We've, we saw it in verse, we saw it in chapter 1. You see in uh, verse 7 in chapter 1, our faith is tested through suffering, why? So that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we see it in chapter 2, verse 12, a text that we already read about, interestingly, that we keep our behavior holy in front of the Gentiles 2.12, the unbelievers 2.12, because whether we've been raptured or whether we die, a day will come when they have to appear before God. The end is coming for them. We see it in chapter 3 in a, in a sort of a... Uh, a kind of a strange way when he even talks about what where Christ uh, preached the gospel when he went down in the tomb and we see that it in uh, chapter three verse twenty two that we see that now Jesus has gone up into heaven and is at the right hand of God and that from heaven he's going to return. You see it in chapter four verse seven. Look at look at First Peter four verse seven. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, wow. What a way to set up, therefore, therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Why? Because the end of all things is at hand. And then in his relationship to church leaders in chapter five, he says, Christ is coming and he's going to give to those who are faithful, the crown of glory. Here's the message to deal with the immediate. You have to see the ultimate suffering and glory, suffering and glory. Suffering is the immediate. Glory is the ultimate. And to deal with the immediate, you have to see the ultimate. To rightly handle the immediate, you have to understand the ultimate. I am asked questions that I don't actually know the answer to all the time. Why did this person die and not that one? Why am I suffering in this way and not that way? And I do not know the immediate answer to that question. But I know the ultimate answer. I know the ultimate answer and to understand the immediate, to make it through the immediate, even when we don't understand the immediate, we have to have faith in the ultimate. If you focus only on the immediate sufferings, you forget God's promises. You don't see straight. You just just warp your perspective on what's right in front of you. And so we have ultimate confidence in God's justice and in God's goodness when we see the reality, the centrality of the afterlife the centrality of the afterlife. Man, this is our thing. Who else gets that? Who else gets together early, relatively early in the morning, one day a week, to hear someone stand in front of them and say, you are all going to die. And then, you're really fixing to live. This is our whole bag. We're the only ones that get this. Who gets together and sings songs about their coming death? We do. We do. I love it when Brennan has us sing hymns and choruses that mention the afterlife. Who else sings that? Who else rejoices over that? We do. We do. And nobody else can. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not some isolated event that happened in the past. Orthodoxy test. I believe the resurrection of Jesus is an event that happened in the past. But what I'm saying is the resurrection of Jesus is not a, a, some isolated event that occurred in the past. The resurrection of Jesus is, is so to speak, pro, uh, eschatologically, I guess is the big word for it. The resurrection of Jesus is the event of the future that happened in the past that changes the present and changes all time forever. The resurrection's not just about a happy ending, the resurrection is about how we live with joy and confidence even though all around my soul gives sway. This is the truth of Christ's resurrection and it is true that in Christ, all who believe in him will rise likewise. We live in that reality now and therefore the world can't silence us or stop us or steal our hope because our hope is in Jesus Christ and our hope is alive. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray with confidence that you would feed your lambs, that you would shepherd your precious sheep through these wonderful words in this wonderful epistle of 1 Peter. Help us to understand it And then help us to take it in and live it with a living faith, with an undying hope, with our eyes upon you. This we ask that you might be glorified in your church. Amen. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.